receive from you the full and free forgiveness of all our sins. By your forgiveness, strengthen our faith in you and grant us to live in faithfulness and love toward others. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Those are from the Catechism Prayer Book. The section from the Catechism this week is a repeat of what is confession and then the office of the keys. Let us speak together. What is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. And second, that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, doubting but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. So for the comfort of Christ's absolution, we have regular times for private confession and absolution, as well as members of the congregation are free to make an appointment at a more convenient time than 6.30 on Sunday morning. What is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. The office of the keys is synonymous with the office of the ministry which Christ has given to his church, the incumbents of which are to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant for the sake of their forgiveness, to preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, and judge doctrine, uh, which we will do somewhat this morning in Bible class. Where is this written? This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said... Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And so part of the gift of the office of the keys and the promise of forgiveness being spoken to every penitent Christian is certainty, comfort and certainty. So, what do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain even in heaven, as if Christ, our dear Lord, dealt with us himself. So there again, we have the promise of the absolution to give certainty as the word of Christ is delivered to you by your pastor from outside of yourself and applied directly to where your conscience is most grievously troubled. If he hears your confession, that's a way in which sin is put to death. And then he speaks the word of absolution, which is a word of resurrection that raises us to new life. 
And of course, that's exercised from the pulpit corporately as well as individually in pastoral counseling and private confession. Our verse for the week is from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Let us speak it together. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So here, notice the transactional character of this. Donald Trump wrote the book, What is the Art of Making a Deal? What's that? Is that? What's that? The Art of the Deal? This is the best deal yet. Where the Lord says, hey, let's talk about this. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, that's the reality. They shall be as white as snow. Brilliant image of the forgiveness of sins applied to the sinner. Though they are red like crimson, which is the color of blood, they shall be as wool. He sheds his blood as the Lamb of God that we might be covered with his wool, the white robe of his righteousness. So this is a promise held out to every broken and contrite sinner. I've got a little bit more on it in the catechesis notes for the week that you can read in your devotions at home. One last time, let us speak it together. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you despise nothing that you have made and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create in us new and contrite hearts that lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, we may receive from you full pardon and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. All right, and the uh, hymn for the week is, As Surely As I Live, God Said. Those final uh, stanzas that we sang before Bible class are uh, catechetical stanzas that reinforce the office of the keys. Uh, in the handout that was at the door, uh, the gift of intimacy in marriage, you should add to the title, is patterned after the gospel of Christ. The gift of intimacy in marriage is patterned after the gospel of Christ. There is a close relationship between law and gospel. When the Apostle Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law, who do you think of first when that sentence is uttered? Christ, and well you should. For in his sacrifice of love for us, he fulfilled the law. Which means that our understanding of the law cannot be fully grasped apart from 
the sacrifice of love in the gospel of Jesus Christ that fulfills the law. Okay? We tend as Christians and as Lutheran Christians sometimes to view the law entirely in negative terms as if the law is our enemy. The law only is our enemy insofar as it accuses us of sin, crucifies our flesh, which is a very significant spiritual function of the law. In Lutheran theology, we speak of the three uses of the law or three functions of the law. The first function or use of the law is how God uses his law to curb the gross outbreaks of sin. So here in society and in the home, law functions to keep people from killing themselves, to keep there from being in society and culture total anarchy and chaos. Of course, when a society or culture or a family rebels against natural law, against the ordering of God's creation according to his law, nothing good's going to come out of it. So the utter abandonment of any kind of parental authority and by extension respect and honor of authority in the civil realm, in the streets of our cities, has led to chaos, hasn't it? So one of the functions of the law is to curb the gross outbreaks of sin. I mean, finally, you've got to keep uh, Johnny from killing Mary in the home, whatever it takes. They're at each other's throats. So there is that function that keeps reasonable order. Um, it's sometimes called the civil use of the law. And we talked about the second use, this function of the law to be a mirror that shows us our sin and how much we need a Savior. But for us as Christians, we also need the law. It's called the third use of the law, which instructs and guides us into what the patterns of love actually look like. So here again, love is the fulfillment of the law. You think of Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross. We get a fuller and more vivid picture of what the law describes. And it's in the person of Jesus who fulfilled it, <clears throat> both by his active obedience in the things that he did and also in his passive obedience. So we see in Jesus, like the Eighth Commandment, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Talk about someone putting the best construction on everything or explaining it in the kindest way. You see it in him. Should we rejoice that he did that? Yeah. Should we gravitate towards that as that's good? Yes, because our sinful flesh wants to say, you punch me in the face. Let's sage, I'm gonna, we're gonna get it right back to you. That's what our flesh wants to do. Okay. So sometimes the befuddlement of the world around us can hoodwink us as Christians. And here's where the law is our aid in now this is right, this is good. It is good actually to turn the other cheek, to cover a multitude of sins. Do we always do that? No. So don't kill yourself over that and commit suicide. 
The law is always going to show us our sin. But we do recognize that what the law articulates and describes is good. Okay? But it's this fact that we're in this sinful world and we have the influence of society that sometimes we're confused. And this is where the law functions to get, take away the confusion. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we're going to look at, understanding the context of the society and culture out of which these pagans were called, okay, is helpful. In, uh, in Corinth, in Greece, at this time in the first century, there were bathhouses, which are uh, not dissimilar to the so-called gentlemen's clubs that you see advertised around the cities, and so forth. And these were places of prostitution, uh, of all manner of porneia, which is uh, sexual self-centered gratification. And so the apostles rightly called them to repent, to leave that lifestyle, uh, to repent of their sins and to believe in Christ and follow the better way. So you can imagine those in Corinth, okay, we should do that because this is destructive to our lives. Does that mean, O oh, Apostle Paul, that all sexual activity is bad? Is it good for us never to touch a woman? Can you explain this further? That's the backdrop of 1 Corinthians 7. So with that in mind, see there's good and proper and right use of the body, and then there's improper use. Okay. So the quotation is from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 9. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, the Greek word here is porneia, where we get pornography. Another uh, appropriate translation is fornication. So because of sexual immorality or fornication, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. Talking about physical affection. And likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. This is talking about physical intimacy. Except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's identifying the weaknesses of the sinful flesh, the old Adam, which still resides in every Christian. So the presence of weaknesses and inclinations does not mean you are not a Christian, 
the presence of weaknesses and sinful inclinations does not mean you're not a Christian. So if you think that successfully purging yourself of all such thoughts and inclinations 24-7 for the rest of your life, then you'll be a Christian, that's a lie. And the devil will use that to try to destroy your conscience. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. Now, liberal theologians argue that this is Paul's admission that he's a homosexual. I kid you not. That's not his admission. His admission here is he had the gift of celibacy. In other words, he was able to control his urges and inclinations, lead, lead, lead a celibate life, which was very helpful so that he could travel all over the Mediterranean world and preach the gospel, teach pastors, found churches, and so forth. He was gone for years in his various missionary travels. And then, of course, he was imprisoned on several occasions. Not a very good way to raise a family. Okay, so, but he had the gift. Not everyone has that gift. So I wish that all men were, even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. So the unmarried are those who don't have a husband or a wife, widows whose spouse has died. It's good for them to remain even as I am, which would be celibate and chaste. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion, which is a reference to physical desire. Now, I have here six theses on this particular text. But I begin it, again, by reminding you of what the, the title, the fuller title is, The Gift of Intimacy and Marriage, how the gospel, uh, defined in terms of the gospel, how the gospel helps us understand this. You might hear those words of St. Paul say, what does this have to do with the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection? Well, it has everything to do with it. And then finally, in these studies, I recognize that, and this is part of the purpose and function, that in the world you have messages screamed at you that are contrary to God's order, to God's design. So, for example, this message about gender being a human construct and not something that is a state of being created by God is a lie. So to hold up to our, is this the law? Yes, it is. To hold up to our children, it is good that you're a boy, if you're a boy. And if God wills, you will get married and become a husband. And if God wills, you'll be a father. And to talk about the goodness of that creation as a man, a boy, a husband, a father. And to describe what that office is like in terms of Jesus. 
who is the ultimate man, the ultimate husband, the ultimate father. We need that. This is part of what the psalmist says, I delight in your law, O Lord. Okay? So, yes, the law shows us our sin and how much we need a Savior that we might repent and flee to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. But in our society and culture where everything is breaking down around us, we've got to hold up the goodness. And so this is part of the third function of the law. But it is always contoured in terms of the gospel. That's why I said at the beginning, law and gospel are closely connected. All right. Number one, first point, chastity within marriage and abstinence from physical intimacy outside of marriage, called fornication. That's the abstinence, abstinence from physical intimacy, which would be outside of marriage, which would be fornication. Such chastity and abstinence is good. That's how Paul begins this section. It's good. Now, I've got some further explanation below. This assertion arose out of the question put to Paul, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? Answer, yes, and ch such chastity is from God. Now, if you look in the world in which we live today, on the one hand, there's, you know, uh, if someone, if, a, if a, an advance is made upon a woman or a man, it's immediately labeled as harassment. On the other hand, what will be promoted, no doubt, at the halftime show this evening for the, uh, the uh, Super Bowl will be very seductive, lascivious dances, dress, and so forth. So we as Christians need to say, that's not good. It's not good for society, and it's not good for our children to imbibe that. Okay? Chastity and the fidelity associated with abstinence from physical intimacy outside of marriage is a service of love for our neighbor. In other words, if I abstain from physical intimacy with someone who is not my spouse outside of marriage, that's good for the neighbor. And some of the reasons are going to come in these, in these additional theses. In Proverbs 5.15, you have these words... Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. I love the way in which the scriptures, as I'm trying to use physical intimacy in place of the other word that starts with an S. So Solomon Solomon knew what he was talking about by experience because he had failed miserably to drink from his own sister and it resulted in the destruction of his kingdom. Verse 18 of the same chapter, whoops, 
Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Again, a beautiful picture where the metaphors are used to speak about physical intimacy. And then verse 20, for why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? And think about what that would do if a husband was enraptured by an immoral woman, he's married, he goes to her, he follows his desires because after all, he has appetites and desires, he has needs, but it breaks and destroys the one flesh relationship with his wife and it does irreparable damage to his children which are the fruit of that one flesh relationship. Yet we have now becoming mainstream the idea that such activity is actually healthy and good for society. The church has to say, no it isn't. It isn't healthy and good at all for society. It's destructive. That's what I mean about serving the neighbor. Now number two, the physical union between a man and a woman creates and implies. Now there's two things, it both creates it and implies a bond of self-giving commitment to each other for the creation and nurturing of life as the man and the woman give and receive each other's love physically. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that you become one flesh if you join yourself to a harlot, a prostitute. So, Holy matrimony is that institution established by God for the giving and receiving of love and life physically within the confines and ordering of marriage. And, and that is, is good. And then there's the consummation of that holy matrimony in the physical communion that husband and wife have. So in the case, for example, of Mary and Joseph, they were called to a life of chastity during those nine months that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit with Jesus. And so it says in Matthew, he did not know her in the physical sense until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Notice there was an element of self-denial on Joseph's part. That's a good thing. Whoever comes after me, let him deny himself. Joseph did not say this is unfair. This is an unreasonable expectation that I should remain chaste. Nor does he divorce Mary so that he can go after some other woman. Notice, had he done that, what would have been his motivations? Selfishness. Selfishness and fulfilling one's desires because I must never leads to good things. Never. That the physical union between a man and a woman both creates and implies um, a bond of self-giving commitment to each other 
can be illustrated in an anecdotal story. Some years ago, and some of you may have heard this, a couple came, not members, desiring to get married. They wanted a church wedding. So they came. I'll, I'll talk to you. We don't marry non-members, but if you're willing to listen to catechesis. So in the first meeting with them, I had had them fill out with their names and their addresses, and, and then I, they each filled this out, and I see it's the same address. And so I said, I see you are living together at the same address. Yes, was the reply, but we're not having sex. To which then the woman looked over at the would-be husband like, are you kidding? You just lied, flat out lied to the pastor. I said, oh, so you really are, yes. So you live together in the same house, you share the same meals, you share the same bed, you pool your resources. Why do you want to get married? Answer? They said, because then there would be commitment. Oh, okay. So now there's no commitment, is that right? He says, that's right. Again. <laughs> she looks at him. Like, what are you saying to the pastor? So there's no commitment. I ran with that. That's what they said, or that's what he said. So that would mean that Sally here, whatever her name was, Sally would be free to have relations with someone else tonight if she wished. He says, yes. She looks at him again. And I said, I see. So if Sally wants to come home with me tonight, and it's OK with her, and it's OK with me, then we should do that. Right. That pretty much ended the pastoral conversation because she soon realized that though they were not married, that activity that they had been engaging in created and implied commitment. You see? It is not the same. Th I'm not committed to Culver's for the rest of my life if I like custard and I go buy two scoops on the way home this afternoon. The use of our bodies is very sacramental in character, with a small s. It's not a, it doesn't convey the grace of Jesus per se, but between the husband and wife united in God's gift of marriage, it is a kind of sacrament between them in terms of self-giving love and the nurture of life. And sometimes that self-giving love and nurture of life actually results in life in children, or it may be the self-giving gift of love and life that comforts and nurtures their love together. But in any case, it implies commitment, fidelity. So when two people united physically, they also become deeply entwined with each other emotionally 
psychologically and spiritually. This helps us understand why a lifelong commitment and pledge of fidelity between a man and a woman needs to precede the physical union. So when I counsel the youth in our youth group, which I do, about dating, about relationships with the opposite sex, I tell them you are going to have tremendous urges to move closer and closer together physically as you grow through your teen years and into your 20s. But I counsel you to remain chaste. Don't do anything physically that you couldn't do in front of mom and dad in public. Because, and there's a reason for this, it's for your own psychological well-being, your own spiritual well-being, your own emotional well-being. I have had to counsel women, for example, who have had physical intimacy with a man, not their husband, presuming that they would one day get married and then it didn't happen. And they're damaged because of it. So the call for chastity and abstinence there on the part of the church is not because we are against the S word. Not at all. We are in favor of physical intimacy as God has ordered it and created it. This is what I mean in this explanation here about the act itself involves entwinement with another individual psychologically, emotionally, and yes, spiritually. So when that relationship is here today and gone tomorrow, it damages us because we are created by God to be in that self-giving commitment for we are made in the image and likeness of the God of an eternal self-giving commitment to us, you see. So all of that is at stake here. Number three. The one flesh union between a husband and wife is patterned after the physical union of love. It's a physical union of love that Christ has established with his bride, the church. Notice the, the language of the scriptures. When we are baptized... We are baptized and become members of the body of Christ. And then when we come to the Lord's Supper, we partake of his body and blood. This is more than just picture language. For when we're joined together in holy matrimony, we come together in what is called in the scripture, one flesh. And that's real. It's literal. And out of that union, there comes the fruit of the one flesh union, children. And they're real. And they're real fleshly. So here, Christ's union with his bride, the church, is, of course, not sexual in nature. It is for us sexual in nature because... That is the way 
procreation takes place. If you want to say the creation of life takes place within the church by the seed of the word, it is not a sexual activity, but it is nonetheless a physical activity that involves water, bread, wine, word, and so forth. So Christ's union with his bride, the church, is not sexual in nature, but it is nonetheless physical as he offers up his body and blood for us upon the cross and as we receive his body and blood in the sacrament. His joy and delight, now this is very important because it's a characteristic of biblical masculinity. See, this is why we need to know this and understand it so we can rejoice in it. Is it going to show us how we failed? Yes. And then we confess our sins and we're absolved and we pray God's help. But we cannot even begin to live according to what God calls us to live if we don't even understand it. Okay? All right. So his joy and delight come from him giving himself to his bride for her good and from her receiving his love rather than any notion that his delight comes from having his desires and needs met by her. Which is so often how the physical union is described in the world. The man's got to have his needs met, and you're not meeting my needs, so I'm going to find another woman who will meet my needs. Or flip it around, vice versa. My man is not meeting my needs. Notice how such rhetoric is antithetical to the movement of love and the commitment of love within the gospel itself. So this basic perspective from the gospel shapes our understanding of the gift of intimacy in marriage. And the Song of Solomon, I asked Beth, I was singing this to her this morning. She, I didn't sing those things. You know, I had, this is my... Uh, early days in the congregation I went to had the contemporary background. But some of it was good when you just had the scriptures that were part of the text, you know. So he called me to his banqueting table. His banner over us is love. It's from Song of Solomon. I am my beloved, my be I am my beloved, my beloved is mine. His banner over us is love. Do you know that? I am my beloved. You know it, don't you? See? Our resident hippie right here. I'm sure you were okay? But, but it, comes, it comes from this text, and it does have something to say. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, the first part of verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. My beloved is mine. Now, I want you to put this in the context of what Jesus says to you. You are my beloved. You are mine. In that assertion by Jesus, which is what he says to you in your baptism, is that coercive on his part? Is it oppressive? No. no. It's rather freeing. It is liberating. It is fulfilling. Chapter 6, verse 3 I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. Chapter 7, we could look at this whole chapter, but you have to be over 50 to read this chapter. 
Verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field, let us lodge in the villages, let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. So it's this interplay where the beloved go together and enjoy the fruits of their labors in the vineyard and then celebrate that in the physical union. Um, you know, at the beginning of the chapter, how beautiful are your feet in sandals? Um, well, I'm not going to read the rest of it. But this builds toward these, each of these theses. Uh, number four, marriage between one man and one woman is ordained by God to help Christians avoid fornication. That's sexual immorality. So if you look at the text from 1 Corinthians 7, notice what it says in verse 2. Because of sexual immorality, fornication, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. And then this strange language, the wife does not have authority over her body. Now this is something we're going to have to talk about and we'll finish talking about it next week. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. So here, marriage between one man and one woman is ordained by God to help Christians avoid fornication. That is sexual immorality. This purpose for marriage is an expression of the original purpose of marriage given by God before the fall into sin. In reading material on this, um, I was struck by the notion that this was added to marriage because of the fall into sin. Not so. This is an expansion of the original purpose of marriage given by God. Since the fall, sin has caused our desires and appetites to become self-centered and bent in upon ourselves. After the fall, the institution of marriage, therefore, is to channel our desires toward their original purpose of self-giving sacrificial love. You follow that? Um, after the fall into sin, marriage then exists to redirect us back into the original purpose of marriage over against the self-centered desires of the flesh. This is important to understand because a husband or a wife, Christian husband or wife, ought not to approach the marriage bed with the understanding that says, I need my physical fix. So my woman belongs to me to give me my physical fix. 
or my man belongs to me to give me my physical fix. Again, what's the motivation? Self-centeredness, that's right. And of course, that appeals to our flesh because that's what our flesh is. Our flesh has its appetites and desires and it's always self-centered. So this, the institution of marriage and the Christian view of marriage is shaped by the gospel of Jesus' self-giving love physically to his bride, the church. Not to get his fix, but to serve her, to care for her, to nurture her. So the preservation of marriage for us among Christians is in part to redirect us back into its original purpose so that we avoid the self-centered sins of fornication. Okay? If we look at it the other way around, like some commentators do, you're going to have these appetites and desires, so at least you have it with your wife, and then you can avoid committing acts of sin. It oversimplifies, and it makes, it makes the giving and receiving within the physical union not one of self-giving love, but one of self-centered love. Okay, so we will... Um, We'll pick it up here, and I, I do want to give you opportunity for some questions, but I wanted to uh, lay out at least this initial. Uh, bring these sheets back with you. You can tuck them in your own Bibles if you're writing notes, or if you can't do that and you want to leave them, that's okay uh, also. Okay? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.